Welcome to British History, Royals, Rebels, and Romantics. I'm Carol Ann Lloyd. You can find me at carolannlloyd.com or at at shakeuphistory on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Please follow me so we can explore history together. I'm delighted you're joining me for a January 2021 podcast series, Your Questions Answered. As I've heard wonderful questions from so many of you, I thought it would be great to have some time to discuss them. And keep those questions coming. What we don't get to in January, we'll address later in the year. Thank you so much for starting your year by joining me in a journey back in time. We'll continue to shake up history, to explore lesser-known facts and figures, and to look at the people who don't always make the history books. Mostly, we'll continue to see how history shows us what's possible. After all, the stories of the past inform the present and inspire the future. And now, let's jump into your questions. As you know, I'm kicking off 2021 by answering your questions. And here's a fascinating one I received lately from a couple of people. How did the British monarchy get started? Who was the first king? So let's start at the very beginning. After all, no less than Julie Andrews said, it's a very good place to start. If you happen to be listening in early 2021, I want to let you know that in addition to the podcast today, I'll be exploring questions like this with pictures in March of this year. The Smithsonian has asked me to present a five-part course that will run Monday through Friday, noon to 1.30 p.m., March 1st through March 5th. I'd love to have you join me. There's information available on my website, carolannlloyd.com, and the Smithsonian Associates website, smithsonianassociates.org. This is part of the very popular Smithsonian Associates streaming programs. And today, we're going to look at some of the key moments that established England as a monarchy and established traditions that remain in the British monarchy today. Part 1, the Romans. Before there were kings of England, there was Roman occupation. In fact, you might think of the first monarch of England as being the Roman emperor. Britain was officially discovered when Julius Caesar made expeditions in 55 and 54 B.C., He did not successfully invade England. That job was left to his successor, Plautius, in 43 AD. From that time, Britain was part of the Roman Empire. This lasted about 400 years. As the Roman Empire faced challenges internally, the troops returned to Rome. In 443, Britons went to Rome to beg assistance from the invading Picts, tribes from the north. But Rome was otherwise occupied and told the Britons they were on their own. After the departure of the Romans, Germanic tribes began invasions. The Germanic tribes included three groups, the Saxons, who came from a part of eastern Holland and northern Germany known as the Lower Saxony, the Angles, who came from the Baltic shores, and the Jutes, who came from what is now Denmark. In around 410, Anglo-Saxon control was beginning to be established. The Britons were ultimately pushed into small settlements and found themselves facing possible extermination. Sometime between 490 and 517, a battle was fought between the Britons and the Anglo-Saxons. The Britons united and at Baden Hill faced off against the Saxons in an epic battle for survival. 
This became known as the Battle of Mount Baden or the Battle of Baden's Hill. And this battle introduces us to one of the most famous and most elusive monarchs in British history. Part 2, King Arthur. It's at the Battle of Baden Hill where reports of a famous warrior or leader or perhaps king emerges. He united and rallied the people around him and defeated the Saxons. He is named Ambrosius Aurelianus by contemporary historians Gildas and Bede and called Arthur by Nennius, the first historian to mention Arthur by name. King Arthur is among the most famous literary characters of all time. The legends surrounding Arthur touch every aspect of world culture, particularly strongly influencing art and literature. Through different translations of early records, later writers and artists were inspired to create their own versions of, versions of this legendary king. The Once and Future King is found in Broadway plays and numerous adaptations through movies and television. But what about the real Arthur? Do we know anything about the person who inspired the enduring legend? Reliable evidence of the real Arthur is limited. There's a story of a strong warrior leading the fight against invading forces in the 5th or 6th century. Some early historians name Arthur or someone with attributes regularly associated with Arthur as the hero of Baden Hill. Nennius, a historian from the 9th century, introduces Arthur as a leader, coming closer to his being a king rather than a fighter. Arthur was certainly a legendary figure by the 9th century and beyond. The Welsh poem, I Gadoen, alludes to Arthur, saying one of the warriors was brave, but was, quote, no Arthur. It's not clear exactly when that poem was written, as the only extant manuscript dates from the 13th century. References to Arthur continue in the work of historian Williams of Malmesbury in his Deeds of British Kings, published about 1125. Malmesbury was highly regarded at the time, and he still is. He used Bede, Ninius, and other now lost records to tell the tale of a weak ruler, Vortigern, bringing the people to the brink of disaster until his successor, Ambrosius, rallies the people with a distinguished service of warlike Arthur. Malmesbury goes on to make his claim clear, writing, This is the Arthur about whom the trifles of Britons brave even now, and one certainly not dreamed of in false myths, but proclaimed in truthful histories. Henry of Huntington developed the story further a few years later. In his 1129 account, History of the English, Huntington picks up Nennius's narrative of the great victory at Baden Hill, identifying Arthur as the mighty warrior who was victorious because God himself intervened on his behalf. Arthur struggled for victory, which came at greater cost and glory in Huntington's account. One of the most famous accounts came a few years later. Geoffrey of Monmouth's History of the Kings of Britain was published in 1136 and provides a strong description of Arthur as a great king of Britain who went on to conquer not only Britain, but Rome. The history was popular at the time, but some, such as the monk Ren of Higdon, expressed his doubts about the accuracy of Monmouth's descriptions. Despite questions about the truth of the account, Monmouth is a key figure in establishing and extending the legend of Arthur. He identified Ambrosius as Arthur's uncle, who became king after Vortigern died. Ambrosius was succeeded by his brother Uther, 
Arthur's father. And then Arthur, the warrior, took the throne as king after his father's death. This is reflective of earlier sources, but Monmouth goes further to elevate Arthur to legendary status. Debates about the historic accuracy of accounts such as these still continues. Some modern historians find evidence in the very name. Arthur is the Welsh version of the Roman name Artorius. And as the stories originated with Welsh writers, this can be seen as support for him being a real person. Other modern historians dispute this, finding insufficient evidence in contemporary sources to support such a great leader. Whatever the truth, Arthur's legend continued to affect and sometimes define the English and British monarchy for generations. And, of course, while all these sources were being written and debated, the monarchy itself was beginning to take shape. Part 3. The Heptarchy By the 7th century, the boundaries of the Heptarchy were established, separating the land into seven tribal kingdoms, Northumbria, Wessex, Mercia, East Anglia, Essex, Kent, and Sussex. The Christian church was taking hold, and the church was making important contributions in art and architecture. One of the first identified kings, Ofa, seized control of the kingdom of Mercia in 757. He went on to conquer Kent and Wessex. His daughter, daughter Aelfled, married the king of Northumbria in 792, extending Ofa's influence. Ofa's reign saw important milestones. In 793, St. Albans Abbey was founded as a monastery. The abbey grew during subsequent century, and today, St. Albans Cathedral is a prominent house of worship and learning. In addition, as part of the Mercian king's desire to dominate all of England and the English, Ofa is believed to have directed the building of what's now known as Ofa's Dyke. It was a monumental undertaking, demonstrating the might of the Mercian forces and securing Ofa's reputation as a European powerhouse. Considering himself Emperor of Mercia, Ofa and his forces could use the dike to dominate the landscape, exclude the Welsh, and monitor the kingdom. Ofa is regarded by many as the most powerful Anglo-Saxon king before Alfred the Great. He died in 796. Agbert returned from exile and became king of Wessex in 802. He defeated Mercia in 825 and became the dominant ruler with Wessex as the dominant kingdom. Viking raids, which had begun in earnest around 790, were ongoing. Egbert was the first monarch to impose rule over Anglo-Saxon territories, controlling all the land south of the Umber. He also achieved victories in Northumberland and North Wales and was recognized as, quote, ruler of the British. At age 69, he led troops to victory over Danish and Cornish forces in Cornwall. The next key figure is Alfred the Great, a strong military leader and wise ruler who became King of Wessex in 871. From 884 to 886, he defeated the Danes at Rochester, imposed rule on South Wales, and took London from the Danes. He's also credited with starting a permanent army and navy. His, na- his reign was not without problems. In 878, the Vikings launched a surprise attack, and Alfred was forced to flee into Somerset. It was there we get one of the most famous stories of his reign. He and his men were living at the goodwill of the people in the area while fighting against the Vikings. Supposedly exhausted after a battle, Alfred sought refuge in a local family's hut. 
The huntsman's wife invited him in and said he could stay and even eat if he watched the cakes she had just put in the fire. She went to collect more firewood and returned to find her visitor sleeping and her cakes burning. She chastised him for his carelessness, not realizing he was no ordinary soldier but the king. True story? Maybe not, but still a great one. Alfred secured more victories, eventually ruling most of England. He started the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles, which is an annual record of events originally compiled around 890. This was the first attempt to chronicle a year-by-year history of England. Alfred's greatness, or at least the title celebrating his greatness, was established during his lifetime. As the Bishop of Sherborne completed his book, The Life of Alfred the Great, in 893. One of Alfred's final accomplishments was the naval victory over the Danes in the Solent. Alfred died as the century drew to a close in 899. After Alfred's death, his son, Edward the Elder, became king of the West Saxons. His daughters, Eil fled, became king of the Mercians following the death of her husband. They both extended their territories. Edward's son, Aelthastan, followed his father and accomplished something truly extraordinary. Part 4, Becoming England. King Aelthstan became king of Wessex in 899 and succeeded to the kingdom of Northumbrians when Citric died in 927. In 937, he and his brother Edmund defeated a combined force of the kings of Dublin, Scots, Strathclyde, and others. During this period, he was recognized recognized as the first person to rule over all the land that would eventually become known as England. He claimed the title King of All Britain. But the kingdom was not stable, and single rule of the area would not last. In fact, it would not be seen again for more than a hundred years. The reigns of Ethelstan's brothers, Edmund and Eadred, and Edmund's son, Edwig, were a series of struggles to control powerful rivals among their followers. Edwig was so unpopular that his brother Edgar was declared king instead. Although young, Edgar established a strong and successful reign that earned him the title Edgar the Peaceful. Edgar's tutor, the Bishop of Winchester, and other church leaders worked to help the church and society become more organized and to establish a single monastic rule for the country. Winchester also promoted the benefits of a strong central government. Edgar's reign saw movement toward strong political control. Coinage became standardized. A system of shires began to emerge, which helped the king administer his laws. Some of the boundaries established during Edgar's reign remained until the Local Government Act of 1972, a thousand years later. These accomplishments were short-lived after Edgar's death. Edgar's two sons battled for control, with Althered eventually gaining the throne after brother Edward was murdered. As we move into the 11th century, the influence of one person would shape numerous reigns and contribute to the United Kingdom to follow. And it may be someone you've never heard of. Part 5, Emma of Normandy. Emma of Normandy was the daughter of Richard I of Normandy and Gunnar, a Danish woman. Born in 990, she was sent to England in 1002 to marry Ethelred II, also known as Ethelred the Unready, a man 20 years her senior who already had 10 children from his first wife. 
The goal of this marriage was to calm the Viking raids because of Emma's Danish heritage. Only 12 years old at the time, Emma went to work, winning over her husband and her people. Ethelred granted her land and she began building. She also had two sons, Edward and Alfred, and a daughter, Godda. Ethelred undid any possible goodwill with the Danes with his massacre in November of 1002, which led to subsequent Viking attacks and invasions. Emma and her children went into exile before Knut, king of Denmark, conquered England in 1016. Emma displayed political skills as she maintained a good relationship with Knut and his new regime. When her husband died, Emma returned to England and married Knut in 1017. They had at least two children, Hartha Knut, a son, and a daughter, Gunhild. According to contemporary documents, Emma played important roles in Knut's government, actively advising the king. When Knut died in 1035, Emma tried to put one of her sons on the throne, either Knut's son, Hartha Knut, or Ethelred's son, Edward. But Knut's son by his first wife, Harold Herford, challenged the claim. Eventually, Harth Knut and Harold ruled jointly until 1037, when Emma and Harth Knut were driven into ex- exile. It's very possible Emma was involved in the negotiations that led to her son Edward becoming a joint ruler with Hartha Knut after Harold died in 1040. The two ruled together until Hartha Knut died in 1042. Edward, who is now known as Edward the Confessor, became sole king of England in 1042. Edward was not happy with his mother, complaining that she had not supported him as much as she should have. He also seems to have resented her marrying his father's rival, King Canute, and her favoring Hartha Canute as king. In 1043, Edward confiscated his mother's property and forced her to move out of her home in the castle of Winchester. In 1045, Edward married Edith Goodwinson, daughter of the Earl of Essex, who was Emma's enemy. Faced with this, Emma retired from court, ending more than 40 years at the center of power. She died in 1052. For the majority of her life, Emma had wielded power in ways that were unheard of for women. Her marriage to Ethelred established the relationship between the Dukes of Normandy and the Kings of England, something that contributed to the Norman Conquest in 1066 and the relationship between English monarchs and Normandy for hundreds of years. She exercised power on both sides of the channel. She won over Ethelred and his kingdom, then established good relationships with his challenger Canute and ended up marrying him. Her alliances may have also contributed to the power of Earl Goodwin, father of King Harold II. Emma was related to both Harold and his challenger, William of of Normandy. A monk of St. Bertin in Flanders created an account of Emma entitled In Praise of Queen Emma, sometime between 1041 and 43. It is not an objective account and is clearly slanted to praise Emma and her decisions. Still, it provides a compelling record of the woman who was the matriarch of the period during a time when women were generally considered powerless. So often forgotten by history, Emma is demanding our attention once more. She was buried at Winchester in 1052. Following the Norman Conquest, her remains, as well as those of King Canute and others, were placed in mortuary chests around St. Swithin's Shrine in the new Winchester Cathedral. In the 17th century, Cromwell's soldiers 
broke into the chest, used the bones to destroy the windows in the cathedrals, cathedral, and then dumped the remains in various places. In 2012, efforts began to examine and, if possible, identify the remains. The hope was to find Emma, King Canute, their son Hartha Canute, as well as other royal relatives. In 2019, the team announced that the remains of at least 23 people, several more than originally thought, were among those found. There is a partial skeleton of an adult woman that researchers believe could very well be that of Emma, wife of kings, mother of kings, and maker of history. Part 6, The Confessor and the Conqueror. Edward the Confessor, son of Ethelred the Unready and Emma of Normandy, was born between 1002 and 1005. The date of the birth is not recorded, but it's between his parents' marriage and the first time he's mentioned in public records. When the Vikings invaded and overthrew his father, he had to flee because the new king, Canute, probably would have had him killed. So it's easy to understand why he resented the fact his mother later married Canute. Edward spent 24 years in Normandy, with the Duke of Normandy as one of his role models. He was always determined to return to England and claim the throne he believed to be his. Some consider the events surrounding Edward's coming to the throne a bit suspicious. The story goes that Hartha Canute invited Edward over to help rule the kingdom. This seems unlikely, or at least hard to believe, in a time when people literally fought to the death to hold on to power. But in any case, Edward joined his half-brother's kingdom and acceded to the throne after his half-brother died mysteriously, or conveniently, or maybe just coincidentally, a few months later. Edward was crowned at Winchester in 1042. He married Edith in 1045. There's a legend that Edward had promised God he would make a pilgrimage to St. Peter's in Rome if he were ever able to safely return to his kingdom. But once he took the throne, Edward felt he could not safely leave his people. The Pope released Edward from his vow on the condition that Edward found or restore a monastery to St. Peter. Close to his royal palace on the banks of the Thames was a small monastery that had been founded around 960. Edward chose this to re-endow and enlarge in fulfillment of his agreement with the Pope. He built a large stone church in honor of St. Peter. This church became known as the Westminster to distinguish it from the Eastminster, which was St. Paul's Cathedral. The only parts of Edward's monastery that can still be seen are the round arches and supporting columns and the pig's chamber, all part of the undercroft. The new church was consecrated as Westminster Abbey on the 28th of December, 1065. But King Edward was too ill to attend and in fact died a few days later. During his reign, Edward displayed a personal piety that endeared him to the people. With no children to succeed him, Edward's death threw the country into turmoil once more. His death on the 5th of January, 1066, was marked by prayers through the day and night, which can be seen in the Bayou Tapestry. He was buried on the Feast of the Epiphany, the 6th of January, before the high altar in the newly consecrated Westminster Abbey. In October 1163, the late king's body was moved to a shrine that had been specially prepared. In the years that followed, some came to consider Edward the patron saint of England. The Benedictine Monastery at Westminster was dissolved by Henry VIII as part of the dissolution of the monasteries in the 1530s. 
Edward's coffin was removed and the shrine was destroyed. Mary I brought back the Benedictine monks and reassembled the shrine in the 1550s. The confessor's coffin still lies in a cavity at the part of the marble structure. The shrine is regarded as the center of Westminster Abbey, and five kings and four queens are buried in that chapel. After Edward's death, Harold Goodwin was elected King Harold II by a council of high-ranking nobles and religious leaders. He was brother-in-law to the late king. Harold was crowned on the 6th of January. The swift coronation is probably an indication that Harold knew his claim was disputed and he wanted to gain the credibility of coronation as quickly as possible. One key person objected to Harold's election, William, Duke of Normandy. William claimed that he was the chosen successor to Edward the Confessor and that the throne had, in fact, been promised to him as the second cousin of King Edward. But William wasn't the only one who was ready to fight Harold for the throne. The first came... The first threat came from Harald Haldrada, king of Norway. Haldrada believed himself to be the rightful king of Denmark and therefore claimed to control large parts of England. He failed to control to gain control of the Danish throne and prepared to try his hand with England. He sailed in September 1066 and was met by an Anglo-Saxon army led by the earls of Mercia and Northumbria. Harald was close at hand with his own elite force of professional troops. Harald's army faced off with Haldrada's force at Stamford Bridge. The victory was Harold's, but he didn't have much time to celebrate. William was on his way. Harold marched to London and from there to a battle that would change England forever. William the Conqueror was born around 1027, the illegitimate son of Robert of Normandy. In fact, his original nickname was William the Bastard. William became Duke of Normandy in 1035 when he was still a child, and it took him seven years to arrange the dukedom. Over the next 20 years, he would struggle to maintain and expand his power. In doing so, he would gain insight into military strategies. He eventually became the most powerful noble in France. Technically, as Duke of Normandy, William was a vassal to the King of France, so he wasn't free to attack England without some sort of justification. He had one. William claimed to be the rightful King of England. William even secured the support of the papacy, which had been at odds with the Archbishop of Canterbury. So William positioned himself as having God and right on his side and prepared to invade England in 1066. Harold's army was already strained as a result of their fight with Hardrada when they faced off against William's forces at Hastings. The Battle of Hastings took place the 14th of October, 1066. William's forces with archers and cavalry defeated Harold and his infantry. Harold was killed. William marched from Hastings to London, taking control of Dover, Winchester, and Canterbury along the way. William was recognized by powerful nobles and church leaders, including the Archbishop of Canterbury, as rightful King of England. On Christmas Day, 1066, William, Duke of Normandy, was crowned King William of England. This marked the end of Anglo-Saxon rule. Anglo-Saxon traditions still survive, a landscape made up of places we still recognize today, and a centralized system of government that kept the peace and raised money every year. And now... The great-nephew of Anglo-Saxon matriarch Emma of Normandy, William, established Norman rule of the country. William I is often recognized as the first king of England, and, quote, English history often starts with the Battle of Hastings. But the monarchy had its beginnings long before 1066. Thank you for helping me start at the very beginning as we explored the history of the British monarchy. Next week, we'll look at another question about the monarchy. Was Lady Jane Grey a queen or 
In other words, what does it take to make a monarch? Look forward to having you back then. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please share with a friend. Do send any questions or comments. I'd love to hear from you where we should explore next. And please subscribe and leave a review. I'd really appreciate it. I'm so glad we could explore history together. Till next time. Thank you.